0: She heard the crowd before she saw them good. She noticed the grocer with his frail wife weeping into his shoulder. She saw the police and she even saw the white man across the street, his arms folded across his chest and a brown fedora pulled low over his brow. The rest of the crowd was made up of neighbors, street folks, ordinary residents of the corner and the block. But that man made her shudder. She recognized him from before, from those years around the time Percy left. Back then... He took up residence on her corner in Blackford too many weeks after Percy was safely away from the city. It made her grateful that she had sent her son away, and it made her distraught that she'd been right to do so. This wasn't the first time during the month she saw him taking up his vigil outside her building, and here he was again, still on the lookout. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature podcast channel on the New Books Network, and today I'm talking with Carla Holloway about the second book in her Harlem series titled Gone Missing in Harlem. It begins with the kidnapping of a baby girl outside a Harlem store, not long after the famous Lindbergh kidnapping, although this one doesn't garner international attention. The first black policeman in Harlem vows to find the baby. In beautifully descriptive language, Holloway goes back in time to long before the baby's mother was born, when the baby's grandmother, Delilah, was pregnant with her first child, and the baby's grandfather was overseas, fighting in the First World War. When they're forced to escape from the South, the family heads north and settles in Harlem, where Delilah will continuously
1: struggle to keep her family
0: safe. Hi, Carla. Thanks for joining me today.
1: I'm thrilled to be with you, Galit. Thanks for having me.
0: So how did your Harlem series come about, and how does Gone Missing in Harlem connect to your first book?
1: Oh, I think my imagination just got absolutely freed when I moved from being an active scholar in the classroom to a reader at home, and I stopped reading all of the nonfiction that I had to read for classes, and my law classes, and my ethics classes, and then I this question that my students kept asking me whenever we read Nella Larson's novel, Passing, which has just come out as a Netflix movie, um, they asked me, well, what happened? And I was always very irritated with students. Said, Nothing happened. The book ended, that the, the page closed, Nella Larson was finished. But I guess I wasn't finished with that because my first book, A Death in Harlem, actually takes up from the end of Larson's um book passing, and guesses at what happened after um, the Netflix movie ends. And then I was in a Harlem space, maybe a a Harlem frame of mind, and the character that I created, what I call the first colored policeman in Harlem, um, just lingered with me, and I had to see what happened to him. And I saw a picture in the New York Times back in the 1930s of the Lindbergh kidnapping and the circle of women gathered around the baby and this sort of dark space in the middle of the picture where I guess Lucky Lindbergh, the dad, Charles Lindbergh would have been, but wasn't. And it made me wonder, well, where's the baby's daddy? And also what about the circle of women with a baby who goes missing? And then, and what happens if it's one of ours? That's what Mm. took me there.
0: Wow. In addition to being a literary novel, this is also a mystery with a few twists and turns. So we're not going to give anything away, but I'd like to know how you set about writing both of your novels. Are you a plotter or a pantser who writes by the seat of her pants?
1: Okay. I'm glad there's a name for it. I'm B, the (laughs) panther. I didn't know that because, of course, my, I published my first novel, A Death in Harlem, at the age of 70. <laughs> and mm. So this is my my novel in my 72nd um, year. And so I didn't know what kind of writer I would be. I didn't take the writing workshop classes. So I'm a, what, what did you call it? A Panser, a pan or a pantser. <laughs> yeah, so as it comes out, but it means that I have to go back and make things fit. One of the lovely things about mystery is that it's a puzzle. And the puzzle pieces constantly get rearranged until they're the full picture. And I found I had fun sort of rearranging the puzzle, but it was a precision I had to develop, which was unusual for me. I'm not a very precise person, but to be, I think, a good mystery writer, the pieces have to fit. So I did have to do a lot of revision to make sure the timelines fit, the storylines fit. That was fun too.
0: It worked. It really did. How how does the Lindbergh kidnapping connect, though, to the kidnapping
1: of well, Chloe in in this. Um, era of Harlem, which is the 1930s. The baby, the Lindbergh baby is all the rage, the missing Lindbergh baby. As a matter of fact, um, somewhere in the book, the FB and I, you know, are up in Harlem looking for the baby. They're in New Jersey looking for the baby. And Harlem is disturbed because he said, what, you know, Are they going to send the FBI? One of ours has just gone missing too because baby, little baby Chloe went missing from her carriage right outside a grocery store. And they have the model of what happened with the Lindbergh baby and see absolutely no difference whatsoever in what should happen when one of theirs goes missing. So it's interesting when the novel came out, really dealing with this idea of black and brown missing children, babes, infant, women, and girls, and white and wealthy. So I didn't know I'd be tapping into that moment in American public cultures, but it's an old story of the attention to the value of our lives and the care and compassion and criticism from within our own community when one of our our own goes missing. That's mm-hmm. what I wanted to pull together, and the the parallel is, you know, all of the gold and money and federal agents that you could see, you know, coming together for Lindbergh, but could not see with Harlem. That's why mm-hmm. Harlem's first colored policeman had to come in and do the job.
0: Yeah, Junebug is six years old and a math whiz when he makes the mistake that causes his parents to grab with a can and get themselves out of mm-hmm. Sedalia. Can you talk about what they went through and how it fits into the context of the Great Migration?
1: Well, I wanted people, there, there's a romantic notion of the, the Great Migration. When um, I used to tell my classes that um, at the beginning of World War II, World War I, about 75% of the Black population lived in the South. And after the Great Migration, that same percentage lived in the North. Well, what did it mean for blacks to migrate into that part of the country, um, and essentially move into crowded and and difficult conditions? You know, not not used to the weather, not used to the to the requisites of living in the North. But these folks lived in a small town in Sedalia, which happens to be the town where my family was enslaved back in the days. So Sedalia was a family story name for me. Plus it has such a lovely name. Mm. Forget its history. So Sedalia is not far from where I live now in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And I wanted to locate the story both in family and in culture. But I also wanted to suggest that all of our moves north weren't a striving to North Star wonderful new life in New York City. This family had to get out of town quick. And I also wanted there to be a little child who was precocious and wonderful and harmed by the suddenness of that move. So I wanted us to pay attention to our children's spirits when these kinds of of um, leave-takings, sudden leave-takings happen, things that we can't plan for, which happened in a lot of Black and brown families when we think of migration. Mm-hmm.
0: You write about positive and negative aspects of both Harlem and the fancier heights. Um, it's Hamilton Heights, is that
1: Hamilton same Heights, thing? right.
0: That's is that far from Washington Heights? Is that the
1: same? Not the same neighborhood. I'm um, Sugar Hill. It's really up in the heights in Harlem. And one of the things I wanted to do was to help readers, and I did this both in a a death in Harlem, as well as gone missing. A death in Harlem really deals with what I call the Harlem Elites. Um, as my mother used to say, they were elites um, because <laughs> they were wealthy, but they were also light skinned. That's the question ah. of Nella Larson's passing. So the light skinned, upper class Harlem folk dealing, you know, just blocks away from regular, more brown skinned Harlem folks. And I found a lot of my readers didn't realize that there was this very elite, elite group of Harlemites who were struggling to maintain their difference and distinction from those regular folks down on the street. So I wanted to introduce them to the idea of class within Black cultures and how that striving class strove to maintain its distinction, sometimes to the point of ridiculousness, sometimes to the point of necessity. So it was um, just a, it was, I'm sort of smiling because it was titillating and fun for me to write about these folks because my parents were members of these elite organizations as I was growing up um, the sororities and fraternities and highfaluting and debutante balls and cotillion groups. Um, so I knew intimately this Harlem. I would go there and in the summers with my grandparents. And so I wanted people to complicate Harlem. That's what I think it was.
0: Were they also wealthier? Didn't they have oh, maids absolutely. of their own? And okay. So it wasn't yeah. just about the shade. It was
1: yeah. also also the, the help that lived in the house. You know, most of us came to learn of the idea of help with um the book by Catherine Stockett. Black folks had maids and and workers living in the households as well, which Nella Larson's book, um, Passing, shows quite clearly, also showing the the color differential. Often these were browner skinned um, Black folks. Um, But the idea I've had readers tell me, you mean Black people had maids? So, well, who do you think you know did the linens? You know, who for for folks who were able to pay? These were doctors and lawyers and business folk, and they owned funeral businesses and huge churches that would become huge. So they were moneyed people, certainly not moneyed in the way of the Rockefellers or Vanderbilts or Morgans, but but up there enough to make a distinction between them and folks who were scraping by. And remember, we're right in the middle of the Great Depression in this book. I go through the Harlem Renaissance, Mm. um, from the Great Migration through the Harlem Renaissance to the Great Depression. So this depression is always going to affect Black folk more. So the urge to find out what happened to that baby is also an urge for the maid in that house, the housekeeper in the house, to keep her job. Because if, you know, if the mothers were not able to be employed by taking care of somebody, these were their families where things went wrong or didn't go wrong. So this was a matter of employment as well. Hmm.
0: The Women's Auxiliary of the Negro Welfare League plays a role in both in getting Delilah a job on the Upper East Side with a rich white family, and later in Hamilton Heights, getting a job with a rich black family. Can you say more about The Women's Auxiliary, so
1: interesting. A a real and absolute group that was formed in many northern cities, especially uh, also Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. Um, These were called uplift societies because the job of the women of the group were to uplift the race. They would give lessons in etiquette. They would give lessons in deportment and comportment. They would look for opportunities to raise people's living standards up, usually um, focusing on hygiene and care and taking care of the home. But they had a a job um, in terms of helping the Negro, the word used at the time, or colored folks at that time, become assimilated into what were considered acceptable values. By doing this, they sometimes emulated what was going on in white societies. So if there was a white debutante ball, there was going to be a Black cotillion. If there was a white um, scholarship dance or luncheon, there was going to be a Black one too. So learning by the example of those they were employed by or those they were watching. So the the development of black sororities and fraternities came about because we could not, we black folks could not join white fraternities and sororities, although we had advanced degrees, went to colleges, our colleges were started. Mine, I went to an HBCU and that was formed in 1867. So you know we had old schools, very traditional schools and all of the accoutrement of higher education, except the status, which is why color and class became important in a different and fictionally interesting way for me in writing. Hmm.
0: Delilah never forgot how horribly her mother and others treated her when she got pregnant before marriage.
1: So, why is she
0: so harsh on poor little Selma?
1: I'm so glad you you noticed that and remembered it because I wanted to think, you know, since especially since this book carries through generations, there's a mother or a grandmother mentioned, there's a mother, there's a daughter, there's a granddaughter, there's a series of girls in this book, each one of whom is affected by how they were mentored and raised. So I wanted them to under, I wanted readers to understand that none of us can be accepted, exceptionalized from our circumstance. You know, we hope we can be better than the worst ways we were raised. But what comes out is that Delilah's mothering in many ways reflects the ways in which she was condemned for being an out-of-wedlock mother. So I wanted to suggest their choices here, folks. We can treat others in the worst Our treat our own in the worst ways we've been treated or we can do better. I wanted Delilah to make that shift in noticing, oh my goodness, I'm calling my daughter the same thing they called me. I don't think she ever realizes it um, absolutely or extrinsically, but at some point she realizes she can plan and do better and she has capability on her own. So I don't know if the ghostly character in the book is a real ghost or her better imagination or just her prod to come on make a plan do better than this we can we can make it through this but I've also wanted folk to understand that we mother the way we were mothered
0: unless we are that, that better or through. less I, I loved that oh, part good, good. But, but I thought the, the um the voice she was hearing was her husband <laughs> he is affected, both, he was affected both by fighting during World War One and coming home to find out that he was no longer treated with the respect he, he had in the army, and later he's affected by the Spanish flu. Can you right. say more
1: about him? Well, Khalid, you're absolutely right. That's who it was. It was a real ghost, you know, as her husband. You know, lately I've begun to say, well, maybe he was a fiction. You know, but mm. this is what happened when a writer begins to think too much about the book they finished, rather the book they should be finishing. Mm. But and when I was writing him, all of us, it was stunning to me that one night I heard his voice. Yeah, you know, and mm. I'm saying, my God, Alice Walker talks like this. Characters do talk to you, and he wasn't gone. And the fact that he was—he died in the pan um, in the 1918 flu pandemic. Actually, it was the second wave of that pandemic in the 1920s and there's a pandemic going on now, it was pure coincidence. Mm-hmm. Who knew? I mean, I'm either quite prescient and I should start being a pundit or I should just stick to the fiction. <laughs> but his, I wanted his death after he brought his family safely from the South, from the uh, incident, which you're right, their six-year-old precocious son, Percy, got them into and to save his son's life, he took the family quickly North But then instead of staying there to protect them and look over them, he dies from the flu. Well, I wrote a book in 2002 called Passed On, African-American Mourning Stories about death and dying in Black communities and interviewed a lot of morticians and funeral directors. I remember them telling me about the series of small white caskets in Harlem that they just had to keep Mm -hmm. having because people lived in such close contact. And folks died from either the, the consumption, they called it, or the flu. So I wanted to pull that possibility. These This family went into a small kitchenette in a crowded building. Somebody was going to get sick and die. And then somebody had to survive. But Iredell came back. Um, and I enjoyed the heck out of writing his ghostly presence into the story and in giving Delilah some sort of solace because this was a a woman who had, who was harmed and who was harming herself, which was also a surprise to me. She's uh,
0: absolutely the moral center of the book. Uh, Delilah has just one friend yeah. who can help her navigate and to whom she can discuss what's going on with Selma after the kidnapping. What's up with Doris?
1: Well, there's a lot up with Doris. One is that her compassion comes from her own estrangement from the Black community. Here we go back to this idea of the uplift societies. Well, if you're not an uplifted Negro, you might be a downlifted Negro. You might not be doing the people proud. You might not be a credit to the race. And one of the lessons of living Black in Harlem One of the lessons of my growing up in the 50s and 60s was to be a credit to the race and an out of wedlock pregnancy or a daughter with um, an out of wedlock pregnancy was not a credit to the race. So the shunning that happened in that community, I wanted to make very clear, because I think we do romanticize the way that. Black communities can be coherent and romantic and unfolding and embracing and helpful. And yes, we can be all those things. We can also be condemnatory and violent and hurtful. So her one friend, Doris, who had a lesbian affair before she came to New York and was put out of her family, who had perhaps more room for compassion than someone who had not experienced that kind of social estrangement, stuck with her. And I wanted... I especially created Doris to have that kind of empathy because of her own situation, because I wanted folks to think about if you're going to be empathetic, where does it come from? It doesn't come from Mm -hmm. nothing. And if we're going to tap into our better selves, where are we going to find that? Well, so Doris was the person who stayed talking to her, but I know from personal experience um, that When things go wrong in a family, folks can leave you lonely, and it can be a mighty isolating experience. So some of that, without going a lot into personal history, some of that comes from my just needing to write out that moment of feeling that social isolation when everyone teaches you that your community should be the closest thing to you always. What happens when they're not?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I thought you did a wonderful job of pre- presenting snootiness in both <laughs> the black and white communities. <laughs>
1: and, I, I know some snooty folks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that was fun. It looked like you were having fun doing
1: I'm, it. Too. I'm glad you noticed that because there are parts of this book more so in the first book. I think this second book, Is The subject is certainly more serious. A missing baby, my gosh, you can't get more serious than that. But I had some fun playing with my folks. Um, Zora Neale Hurst would call them my people, my people. Well, having taught about them for so many years in literature and, and cultural studies classes, getting to write about them with some freedom, I did have some fun with that. And I'm glad you noticed it and picked up. It's not... You know, this is a solemn book, um, especially because Delilah is such, for me, a thick and resilient and flawed character. You know, she is not by any means a perfect mother. But, you know, I liked creating the communities of folk. I I saw them like a Greek chorus talking about her. Who's a baby daddy? Baby ain't got no daddy. Price drop, you know, so Mm -hmm. the the notion of, you know, is there going to be, are are we going to get some money? Is there going to be a kidnap note here? A kidnap for a Harlem baby. So yeah, that was fun for me to write. I'm glad you noticed that. So
0: Carla, what can you tell us about the third book in the series? Are you Um, almost finished and when will it be released?
1: um, I am not almost finished, so I don't know when it will be released, but I do know it is A Haunting in Harlem. And I do know it is about an elderly psychic with dementia. Now just mm. stay with that for a minute.
0: Wow. If, you're,
1: if, if you're dependent on the community to be the psychic, the person you people go to to say, what should I do when? But you got a bit of dementia going on. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that situation. So right now I'm just caught in that situation of where is the truth? What is she saying? Um, How does she hide or use her dementia? And who is she haunted by? And then I think I might be freed of my Harlem trilogy, but I'm enjoying just staying in this book and taking my time writing it.
0: Well, if you decide to keep going, the person I'd like to hear more about is Weldon, Harlem's first Black policeman. Love that guy.
1: I don't see how I could let him go. Um, so far in the book, he's already there noticing that there's some signs of of Miss Pearl. I will say her name. Miss Pearl is not the same Miss Pearl he knew when she was growing up. So he's looking out for her already. So somehow this feminist writer comes up with a male policeman you know, who keeps so traveling insane. through her books. But I love Weldon, too. And he's a reader. Mm-hmm. And... Oh, and he's we good. love a reader. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today, Carla. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Galeed. I've enjoyed every minute.
0: And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Carla Holloway, author of Gone Missing in Harlem, the second book in her Harlem series. Thanks for listening, and may you always be immersed in a juicy novel. Happy reading.